Is Jesus a part of your life? A big part of your life? A special part of your life? Is the Lord with you in trouble? Of course he is. Is he with you now? Of course he is. I think we would all say quite sincerely yes and amen to most of those questions. But the questions fall short of how the Bible describes this all-consuming fire that God is. He sits enthroned, the Lord does. Not in a passenger seat, not as a co-pilot, not in sidecars. David this morning in Psalm 139 will point us to this incredibly all-engulfing God whose knowledge, presence, and power will either terrify us or bring us comfort in our deepest and darkest valleys. If you're following along online, it's on the Grace Covenant Church app or the YouVersion uh, app for today. You'll see a point to the notes. They're right there. There's even some fill in the blanks today. Psalm 139 has been called the crown of the Psalms. And I know we all go to Psalm 23. It's the one we hear the most at funerals. And we probably know that one by heart. Most of us know it in uh, the King James Version, I'm sure. But Psalm 139, apart from Psalm 23, is another huge favorite. It's one of the best love. It's a wisdom psalm. It means to pass along wise teachings. It has the features of being a hymn and a lament at the same time. It's about the completeness of God's knowledge and care for every individual, every single created being. David praises God because, and here are some headings if you're taking notes, although I'll spend some time with them. In this psalm, we see God's knowledge in the first six verses, God's presence in the next six verses, God's power in the next handful of verses, God's glory and God's will are all on full display in this one psalm. You can see why it's a favorite. So as we wrap our mind around the text for this morning and lean into the fact that he is Lord of all, I want you to make a note. If you write in your Bibles, this would be great to have out beside those first six verses. Or if you're taking notes or you see that blank on the app, the first one is this. He is Lord of all. He, here's the word, he knows. God knows. Look at verses one through six. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows us. David's amazed at how completely God knows him. It's as though God has sifted through him in painstaking detail and gone over every single part of him. God knows him. The beauty of this is this. God doesn't have to go over in any painstaking detail. He made you. He knows you. It's amazing, though, when you think about it. If you look at the passage there, he knows when you're up and when you're down. See it in verse 2, when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows what you're thinking. He discerns my thoughts from afar off. He knows where you're going, and he can get your turns to you faster than a GPS. He knows how you are processing your next word. Uh Uh-oh, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows the next syllable. He knows what you're going to say before you say it, why you're saying it, how you filtered it, or for some of us, how we didn't filter it. Not that that applies to anybody out here. He knows why you are doing what you are doing, thinking, feeling, going, saying, and all the things that you are. God knows you. He has actively and thoroughly searched 
and known you, but not because it takes any energy on his part or there's something he doesn't know. He just knows you because he's God and you are not. God knows us. It's an amazing knowledge. Jeremiah 12 says, but you, O Lord, know me. You see me. You test my heart towards you. Psalm 7-9, you, Lord, who test the minds and the hearts, you're the righteous God. Psalm 44, he knows the secrets of the heart. Matthew 9, Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Job 31, he sees my ways and numbers all of my steps. God knows you. He knows all about you. If you ever feel like you have been forgotten, let me remind you this morning, God knows you intimately, personally. The attribute here listed is the omniscience of God. Heitzig writes, his knowledge is immediate, it's instantaneous, it's comprehensive. He is fully retentive. God, does, God knows what he knows without any kind of research. He's never had to go to school. He's never had to take a test. He's never had to be informed about anything to discover it. He knows it all. In short, he is omniscient. It's an old adage, but it applies. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? He knows. David takes comfort in the fact, and then it turns into worship, and then finally a very sincere request that God knows. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high, I cannot attain unto it, that last passage. It's not in my notes. I'm just about to transition to the next point. But I just feel a little prompt to say here, very few of us, if any of us, are in possession of all of the facts when it comes to any matter. It's amazing how quickly we form opinions, and post something and find out later we were shooting blanks because we didn't have all the facts in the situation. Go to the one who knows. You say, well, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's coming next. I don't know how I feel. I don't. You could fill up the volumes of the books of things that we don't know. I want to push you to the one that knows. And he's the God of this Bible. Number one, God knows. Number two, verses 7 through 12, he is present. He is present. He is Lord of all. He's present. There's nowhere that David can go that's beyond God's saving presence and love. The vastest distance, the deepest darkness, even death itself are no barriers to God. Look at the passage. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee? If I go up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Where can I go? But to the Lord, the songwriter said, from the highest heights to the deepest depths. Now, the notion of escaping to heaven and to hell or to the lowest parts of the earth finds its roots in Eastern mysticism, in Near Eastern mythology, actually. In the Old Testament, David knows who he's talking to, and he's addressing that. The Old Testament acknowledges that God's ability to access every part of the earth is his because he's sovereign. The Bible speaks of this in Job 26. It speaks of it in Amos 9. But banishment to the underworld removes a person from God's blessing and presence. You find that in Psalm 6 and Ecclesiastes 9. David cannot remove himself from the realm of God's transcendence or God's reach, and neither can you. Nor could he run from God's imminent 
and personal encouragement, nor, nor can you. Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth? Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that word naked there in the southern is naked, if you need that translated for you. How do you respond to that truth? How do you respond to the fact that you can't get away from God? Does that terrify you? Does Numbers 32, 23 come to mind? Be sure your sin will find you out. In the early times of my, our marriage, honey, I didn't say the other day. It has been a long time been a minute. But uh, my wife, Ashley, used to run a program at a church we served called Mother's Day Out. And it was a thing where we would open the church property and some stay-at-home mothers would bring their children. That's what it was for. Moms who stayed home with their kids, they would bring their kids, drop them off at the church. So for fill in the blank, you know, for whatever they wanted to do, go sit in the car and cry. I don't know. But whatever they needed to do, they could do. And uh, Ashley would take care of them. And one of the, there was a brother and sister team there. They both grown up into wonderful, Jesus-loving, God-following adults. Huh? They're great people. But as kids, they were, they were awesome. They were funny, too. And, and the little brother would do things to irritate the sister. Not that that happens anymore in anybody's home. But the big sister used to say, when that would happen, she would say, Jesus, come down here and look at him. And we couldn't figure out what that was. And we finally figured out probably what's happened is the mom and dad were teaching at home. The Lord sees you. He sees everything. And Jesus is watching you. And they may have even gone old school and said, don't be caught doing anything. You wouldn't want to be caught when Jesus returns. Well, Danielle had kind of theologically merged those two thoughts and said, Jesus, come down here and look at him. He's getting on my nerves. I don't know what happens when you find out the fact that God sees you. And you can't escape his presence. If that terrifies you, you're actually in a good place this morning. But what if it comforts you like Joshua? The Lord says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Like David. David said, I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels and jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but because God is with us, look, we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We can say like the early church in Hebrews 13, the Lord is our helper because he's with us. I will not fear what can man do to me. Some of you here this morning may be trying to outrun the Lord. Watching right now, you may be trying to outrun the Lord. You may be trying to duck, hide, to cut out. You can't. He sees. He knows. He's already there. You may think you're running from him, but here you are, tuned in online to a preacher, preaching in the south end of Charlotte. Here you are, sitting up under the sound of my voice. You're not doing a very good job running from the Lord. Weak and wounded sinner lost and left to die. Lift your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Some of you here have loved ones who are near to you but far in their hearts to Jesus. 
they're not too far. I want to encourage you this morning. Their case is not too hard. Their hurt is not too deep. Ah, Lord God, it's you that have made the heavens and the earth, Jeremiah would say. And your outstretched arm is great power. Nothing is too hard for you. Behold, the Lord answers, I'm the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? God has always been at work in David's life, and he's been at work in yours. He formed him in his mother's womb. He sees his every action. He knows his every thought. He knows all. He's everywhere. It brings us to point three this morning, the next few verses. He is, verses 13 through 16, if you're making notes, he is powerful. He's powerful. He knows, he's present, and he's powerful. Look at verses 13 through 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. God knew you, willfully formed you before you showed up. He knew you and had a plan for your life that involved his praise being on your lips. This is why this is why the pro-life issue is not a political issue. This is a Bible issue. It's an Old Testament issue. It's a New Testament reality. This is why the church looks at texts like this and, and, and we should be scratching our head and and running after with claws out anything that looks like racism that shows up in the church because we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. When we embrace the Imago Dei, we are embracing the fact that we are all created in the image of God. He made us on purpose, for purpose, by design, in His image. In 1891, F.A. Johnson wrote beautifully these fantastic words. He said, creation is designed origination by a transcendent and personal God of that which itself is not God. Creation is not simply the idea of God or even the plan of God, but it is the idea externalized and the plan executed. In other words, it implies an exercise. It's not only of intellect, but also of will. God made on purpose for his pleasure. Then God said, verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And they gave him dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So created God, or so God created man rather in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Being made in the image of God sets us apart from the rest of all creation. Sets us apart from the rest of all of God's handiwork. We are the only image bearers of God in all of this creation. When you look at another person, whether male or female, you are beholding a creature that is a reflection of the likeness of God. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is the immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. Immortal horrors 
or everlasting splendors. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love. Look around if you're here this morning. If you're watching on a device and your significant other is next to you. Or maybe you can lift up your eyes and see somebody. Else. Look around. I'm not speaking rhetoric. I want you to actually look around. Look at the immortals all around you. Made in the image of God. Every single one of them. This is not abstract or academic theology. This is at the heart of the church, modeling beautifully that every life matters, beautifully that all individuals deserve dignity and respect on a personal and corporate level for the church. God intentionally formed each of us the way that he did for his glory and for his pleasure. If we take the doctrine of the Imago, Imago Dei seriously, we will long for that likeness to be ours and shared with all other image bearers we see. Racial reconciliation rests on this. We not only fight for life, we stand in the gap for the vulnerable and the voiceless to show them Jesus. Programs and initiatives will never accomplish what can be forged in our living rooms and dining room tables as the people of God. God had been at work in David's life since he was wonderfully formed, and he's been at work in your life, whether you see him or not. He knows, he's present, he's powerful, and now David turns his wonder to praise. Here's your next point, 17 through 22. You ready? He is worthy. He is worthy. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. God thinks about David constantly. You are on God's mind. David prophetically answers Browning's, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. With this simple answer, I can't. There are too many. <laughs> it gives him total security. When he wakes in the morning, whether... In the morning after sleep or at resurrection after death, he is still with God and God is with him. He gets so caught up in thinking about this that he is overwhelmed with this omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God that he has an outburst. Do you see it? Now, I used to think that all the psalmists were emotionally unstable. Right? When I was reading the Psalms early on in life, I'd read this, Lord, you're wonderful, you're excellent. And then the next word, it's like he says, kill them all. You know, and you're thinking, what's happening? What just happened? But when you read it in context, you see the honesty of the lament. But here you see David caught up. He says in verse 17, after he said how precious they are, look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Well, this doesn't sound very merciful. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Oh, my goodness. Do not I hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Oh, David. That doesn't sound very politically correct or winsome and way to influence others and make friends. Hang with me for just a moment. David gets so caught up in how big God is and that God would care for him intimately. He has an outburst at the enemies of God. These people are wicked. They are bloodthirsty. They speak against God with malice aforethought. They take the name's Lord in they take the Lord's name in vain. They hate God. They rise up against God and David's not having it. He's so smitten with the perfection and the holiness of God. He sees justice for those who would reject, rebel and actively slander the Lord as death. You and I 
lest we kid ourselves, are also worthy of that same death. Somebody says, I just want what's coming to me. I doubt it if you open this Bible. We ought to thank God every day for his grace and his mercy. But that's something to get ticked off about, isn't it? That's something to get worked up at. I've seen professing Christians online. I, I wish I could come off, but I can't. I'm going there. Bullying and shaming and spewing venom at other people who are wearing masks. I've seen professing Christians online fuming and bullying and shaming people who are not wearing masks. I've seen this cancel culture infect the church so that we now occupy and invade the halls of Christendom and the call for maligning people who either say too little or too much or didn't use this phrase or that phrase with their politics, justice, pandemic, or whether it's about racial reconciliation. If a hashtag or 280 characters would solve the world's crisis, we'd have fixed it by now, y'all. These issues that we're facing can only be corrected by the dynamite power of the gospel and a life that is sanctified, lived out in a gospel-revealing way with a church that gets in each other's business as brothers and sisters and says, see me and let me see you. What are you ready to spit fire at? (laughs) When's the last time you got bothered because somebody took the Lord's name in vain? Or have we become so desensitized it doesn't even cause us to flinch anymore? David's astonished that this God, great and glorious, could be maligned. We can relate a little bit, I hope, to his response at how deeply wrong it is for others to mock and belittle our great God and King. He rightly longs for God's name to be exalted. If you're not bothered, get bothered. But remember, our God is a God of justice. And he has the final say in the matter. We are not the executioners of the justice of God, this side of glory. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This longing to see God glorify has us loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. And this puts us in our final thought here. It's a quick one. The path of God's will. Last two verses, verses 23 and 24, I see that God's will, here it is, his will is for you to be totally his. He wants all of you. The outburst is over and David invites God into every nook and cranny of his life. He says, search me, O God. You see it there in the text? Know me. Try me. Know my thoughts. See me. To David, God's knowledge, his presence, his power, and his glory weren't supremely theological or philosophical. They were personal and relational. The verb used here to search is the same one used in verse 1. It's a statement about the way that God does this. He tests us. He refines us as a refiner tests metal. David is saying, look at my thought life. Look at what's fueling my thoughts, what I'm meditating on. Look at what I'm musing on what I'm amused by and entertained by. Look at what I'm longing for and fix it, Jesus. You see that little phrase, grievous way? See if there be any grievous way. Another rendering of that would be a way of pain. Here's what David is boldly praying to the Lord, and I hope that you will when we come to our time to respond to the text. Lord, is there something in me that's causing a way of pain for others? by how I'm afflicting or doing wrong. 
know, I made that emphatic emphasis on that syllable at the end for a purpose. The gospel will offend. You don't have the right to do violence to scripture to kind of clean up the gospel for the Lord Jesus Christ. You preach and proclaim the goodness of God and let it stand on its own. I'm not talking about that or the biblical authority here. I'm talking about when we stumble, bumble, and fumble. And sometimes we know it and other times we don't. We've got blind spots. And David's saying, God, if my blind spots are causing pain on somebody, I need you to show me. It's an encouragement to all of us. Even if you have victory in many areas in your life, there is potential for causing pain. It lurks in every heart. Even if we've experienced a large measure of victory over our vices in the past, weights of greed, lust, addiction, even racism. We've got to stay vigilant and stay on guard with our hearts and minds and mouth. We must regularly ask the Lord to search us, reveal to us, convict us, lead us, and heal us. And then Grace Covenant, just before I close, let me charge you with this. As biblically-minded Christians, we must, we must, it's a command, have people of God in our lives who see us. Men who can help their brothers identify blind spots. Women who can help sisters do the same. And hear me, you need somebody in that group of yours that's up close to you that doesn't look like you. close coming back to how we started Jesus didn't ask to be a part of your life or even a big and special part he wants all the parts <laughs> all the parts you don't need more space for God in your life you need God to fill every nook and cranny you need your life to completely be wrecked by God and then shaped by his word and his spirit the God of this Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament is all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, worthy of glory. This God is the one who loves you so much that he gave his only son. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And in doing that, he gave us everything we needed to commit to him on his terms. What are the terms of God? Total surrender. There are 7.8 billion people on the globe. 327 million people in the United States of America, 10.3 million citizens of North Carolina, 5 million in South Carolina, 1.5 million people in the counties represented in the attendance of Grace Covenant Church. I don't know how many people are in your city or your town or on your street, but I know this, God knows you. You. God knows you. God loves you in spite of the fact that he knows you. And God wants all of you. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. You may want to hold your Bibles open and look at those last two verses. I'm going to summarize it for you. I wonder if you've had the boldness and the audacity to pray this morning. Oh, Lord. Search me. Know me. Try me. See me. Convict me. Cleanse me. Send me.